Testing. There it is. Testing. Excuse me. There you go.
Good morning. We are winging it this morning. Uh, we have no bulletin because of the, the hectic week we had prior to all of this. And what I'm going to ask for is uh, some updates. If you know the update for Clara May, does anybody have that information, how she's doing? Jess? Okay. Okay, so she's definitely on the upswing, so to speak. Okay. Okay. We also understand that Mercy had a, a bit of a episode last, what was it, Sunday? Sure. Okay. So we still need to. Okay. We'll keep that in prayer as well. Um, is there any other uh, news about uh, other members that aren't here or prayer requests that we can? Okay. Terry uh, was supposed to be at our, our memorial service for Suzanne Friday night, but she fell ill, and uh, she's out of precaution and going to stay home today. So hopefully she'll be on the on the web and uh, can watch the service. Any prayer requests uh, outstanding that uh, we need to address or take into consideration? Nothing at this time? Okay, what we need to do is uh, ordinarily we have our uh, scripture for meditation. Jess, did you have another? Correct. Will it be today? Yeah, uh, if, if you haven't heard completely, uh, Jenny Zegler had the surgery. She's in a, what essentially is almost a, from the chest up, a, a cast for uh, the arthritis in her neck. Uh, the Deacon Fund distributed some funds to her uh, about a week or so ago, and we are going to be receiving a uh, love offering for her today. If you're prepared to, to put it in a box, please do so. If not, then uh, uh, perhaps by next week you can drop something in. We're going to try and send her a love offering to sustain her. One of her daughters is working, I think, two or three jobs uh, just to try and keep the family afloat. And uh, there's, there's definitely a need there. So any, any, yeah, the girls. 
14. 14. Trying try, trying to sustain that's that's a it's a daunting task to say the least for an adult, but for these young kids to be forced to step up in that fashion to provide is extraordinary, and especially for today. So we give them a lot of credit and uh, put them in our prayers as well. Uh, anything else? Hey, Phil, how do you want us to do this? Do you, do you want us to write a check to the church and, and, and then have the church send her a check? Write a check to the church. We can make the deposits, and then uh, Scarla will will cut a check, and we'll we'll mail okay, it to you. Okay. Shall we just put Jenny on the check or something like that? Sure. Put that in the memo. Okay. Okay. Any other requests or announcements? Canandela haven't been here. Tom and Brenda. It's been a long time since we've seen them. They're both. Uh, uh, struggling with uh, age and illness and all the things that happen to us older folks. So, and I have to include myself into that now, <laughs> and I don't like it. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, in lieu of our, our scripture for meditation, we're going to do a response of reading this morning, taken from Psalm 77, page 812 in the Red Hymnal. When you're ready, would you please stand with us? <clears throat> I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. I remembered you, O oh God, and I groaned, I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night, my heart beat, and my spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O oh God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are a God who performs miracles. You display your power among the nobles. 
With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the world. The lightning lit up the world. The earth and Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Remain standing for our opening prayer. Father in heaven, as we begin our service this day, we seek your wisdom, we seek your presence, and Lord, we ultimately seek your face. We pray, O oh Lord, that we are but a small group this day, but through our prayers, Lord, we can be mighty in you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us in the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us abundance of grace, that you would strengthen our hearts, give us resolve and fortitude to stand against a world that would mock and deride you. Bless us as a group this day, O Lord. Be with us and watch over us. Give us peace in our hearts and safety in your presence. Be with us now, Lord, as the pastor brings forth the message this hour and that hearts would be drawn to you, and those that are in you, O Lord, can have this continued confidence and the strength and the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You would take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity hymnal, and turn to number 498, 498 in the red. <clears throat> Jesus, what a friend for sin. 
last week, Ed, you were here and you raised your hand last week, and I didn't get to you. Do you remember? The last time you were here, you raised your hand, but someone over here um, had beat you by half a second. I was coming back just in case you remembered. Yeah, Ed, yes, yep, Doc, yep. <laughs> I just felt bad because um, you raised your hand like a split second after someone else the last time. Oh, let's see. Do um, two. Let's see. Is it a worship the king, or is it? Was it come thou fount of every blessing? <laughs> you take. <laughs> this is your pick. <laughs> come thou fount. So two in the brown. And then. I'm sorry for putting you on the spot, <laughs> but you were here and. <laughs> Two in the brown. This is one of my favorites. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 96, and it's going to be on page 934 in our Pew Bible. And when you get to it and are ready, please stand for the reading. 
Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. May God add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture. Please remain standing for our next song. Turn to number 689, 689 in the red in the Trinity hymnal. 689.
Our scripture text this morning is Psalm 96. In our mini series on worship, <clears throat> our last study took a look at the truth that God seeks true worshipers. Jesus deliberately broke with Jewish protocol by traveling from the province of Judah to Galilee directly through Samaria because there was a Samaritan woman there who, though a great sinner, needed the salvation of the Lord. We can say he went out of his way to confront her and disclose to her that he was the Savior of the world. She was an immoral woman. She had five husbands, and the latest man that she was with was not her husband. They were just living together. We learned that Jesus' ministry was to seek out sinners and not wait for them to come to him and not to distance himself from them because of their wicked lifestyle. The self-righteous see no need for a savior. They avoid the gospel of repentance. They avoid... Faith, like the plague, for the living water that Jesus promised this woman is to be found in his grace and mercy alone. Jesus met her, can I say it this way, in her deepest need. No pep talk on the value of religion in her life, none of that. No listening ear to hear her sob story on life's hard knocks. No pat on the back trying to help her come to some kind of self-awareness and self-reformation. None of this. Instead, a call to repentance and a call to faith. By Jesus' informed interaction, the Samaritan woman's diversion was rebutted, and she came to know the reality of the living water for her soul that Jesus promised. By the way, the town folk as well responded to her testimony. She went into the town and testified immediately about how she met the stranger by the well and he told her all things in her life and she came to know the reality of his salvation. The whole village of Sychar was granted repentance because of this woman's testimony. Now, today's study directs our thoughts in two facets of worship. Worship as, number one, obligation, and worship as a privilege. And so as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's intervention. Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's true. You inspired it by your holy prophets of old and the apostles of the New Testament as well. And we come before you today to listen to what you have to say. The fact that it is the word of God makes it relevant. You're never obsolete. You're never irrelevant. You're always right on what we need. And we thank you for that. We may not think that we need to be admonished in a certain way or encouraged in a certain way, but you know what we need. And by your Holy Spirit, 
you use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to bring conviction and repentance in our lives, but also encouragement and strength and hope and all the various things that we need to function in a cruel and sinful world. We thank you for this. We would be lost like a a ship out on, on a mighty sea, lost by the wind and the waves pounding away. But you rescue us. You plant our feet on the solid rock, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that and praise you and ask now that you will teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I want to direct your attention in our mini-series on worship, that worship is number one, an obligation, and number two, it is also a privilege. An obligation, yes, but also a privilege. Did you know that God commands us to worship him? There are certain things in life that God leaves to our own discretion. Where you're going to live, what vocation you might choose to support your family, what make of car you're going to buy, and so on and so on. But to worship God or not worship God is not open to personal preference. Verse 9 of our text says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea respond and all of is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Psalms 96 verses 9 and following. Now it is true. Only God can effectively solicit joy and gladness from the inanimate objects of the heavens and the earth, the sea, the fields. But he can and he does command the people of the nations in general and his own people in particular to worship him. There's no sense that this is optional. No, it is obligatory. Keep in mind what worship is. And we have learned that both the Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament and the Greek word for worship in the New Testament say the same thing. It means to Bow down before and pay homage to. To be humble and self-effacing. That's what worship is. The worship of God, you see, presupposes that we know our place before God and do not overstep our authority by failure to credit God with all that is due his person and his name. We learned in an earlier study that we're not to view God as many but one nor are we to image or invent him as we want him to be. That's idolatry, and that is forbidden as well. So now we learn that God has something to say about the necessity of worship and just how we are to conduct ourselves in worship. Because our hearts are prone to idolatry, it is essential for God to lay down the checks and balances to keep us you know, obedient compliance to his will. In a later study, we're going to look at some of the elements of worship, but 
For now, I just want you to see that God commands us to gather for the purpose of worshiping him. For one thing, the nations need to see and hear the praise of God's worshiping people. Look at verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all people. Psalm 96, the first three verses. Wow. Proclaim his salvation. Declare his glory to the nations. We cannot escape the missionary emphasis of these words. What is, a, what is it about the nations that the psalmist would say to us? Well, he says, declare God's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Verse 5, for all the gods of the nations are idols. Okay. What is it about idols that demonstrate the great need of the nations? In Psalm 135, the psalmist tells us, he says, The idols of the nation are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Nor is there breath in their mouth. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135, verses 15 and following. So here the psalmist spells out the impotency of the idols of the nations. The idols have all the appearances of life. Mouths, eyes, ears, supposedly possessing all the ability to see, hear, do, on behalf of those who worship them. But these features, mouth, eyes, ears, are just so much castings in silver or gold. They're inanimate. They're not alive. They're not lively at all. It'd be like us walking into the lobby of McLaren Hospital, seeking medical help for a physical ailment, and approaching one of the portraits of the doctors and staff that they have on the sidewalls, and expect that they were going to help us. The portrait may, in fact, be a rather accurate rendition of the physician that you need to see, but in the end, it's just a picture, a facsimile with no power to heal at all. The idols of the nations are like that. Viewed as the gods, Necessary to help people in their needs, but lacking any real and living divine power to perform. They are lifeless, powerless, not in the sense that they were alive one day and then they died. No, no, none of that. The idol gods have been lifeless and powerless from the beginning. What was their beginning? Psalm 135. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. So you see, the idol gods didn't make anything. They were powerless. They are not creators, but are themselves creations. And they 
are creations of those who bow down to them in worship as, as irrational as that is. I think it's in Ezekiel he talks about carving a, a god out of a log and then Ezekiel mocks. He says, and then they bow down to the thing they just carved. With some of the log, they make into a god and bow down to. With other logs, they throw it in the fire and it warms their hands. And they think, this is something that is my god. In contrast, the god of the Bible deserves to have his glory declared abroad. Verse 3, because of his Marvelous deeds among all the people. Contrary to the idol gods of the nations, the God of the Bible has done and is doing some things among the nations. They have a blind eye to see it, but we do not. The nations are ignorant, being blinded by the evil one. But we have come to know God, and therein lies one of the reasons the missionary enterprise falls squarely on our shoulders. We know the truth. We need to get the truth out in our missionary endeavors. So consider our informational praise of God. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, the God of the Bible is the creator. He's mentioned in verse 3. Generally, his marvelous deeds among the nations. Look at verse 5. The Lord made the heavens. He's the creator. Contrast that to the idol gods of the nations, which can only sit there and look stupid. God has done things. God has been and continues to be active in the world in which we live. But the idols don't do anything. They're just statues on a shelf. Jeremiah asked the question, Do any of the worthless idols of the nation bring rain? Now, that's a loaded question. You can see that, right? You can see where he's coming from. Do any of the worthless idols, he's already told you what the idols are, right? They're worthless. But he says, do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all of this. Jeremiah 14, verse 22. Zechariah chimes in. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. The God of the Bible is the creator. Declaring God as creator is a repeated theme of Christian testimony. In the town of Lystra, Paul healed a man who had been lame from birth. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done that, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus 
whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city, to the city gates, because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them, to Barnabas and to Paul. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the street shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past he left all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Acts 14, verse 11 and following. Joel chimes in, Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years a locust have eaten, my great army that I send among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Joel chapter 2, verse 23 and following. Paul confronted the Athenian idolaters on Mars Hill in the New Testament. And this is what he said. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands as if he needed anything because himself gives life and breath to every person. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Acts 17, verse 24 and following. Our informational praise of God in worship magnifies him as creator. He's creator. Secondly, the God of the Bible is to be feared. Verse 4. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Now we're not talking here about a know-nothing, do-nothing, impotent artifact of man's inventions and craftsmanship. No, God is to be feared because he can do something about rebels. He can and he does deal with idolaters. Yes, Paul told the Athenian idolaters about God as creator, but he went on to say, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 29 and following. Who's the one he raised from the dead? It was the Lord Jesus. And he is going to be the judge of all men. This is why verse 9 of our own text says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Then verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. What can a lifeless idol, God, produced by men, what can it do to you? If you choose to disobey, what can it do? Let me read it for you from Jeremiah 10, verse 5. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they can't walk. Do not fear them. <laughs> they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. That just about sums it up, doesn't it? The idols of the nation cannot hurt you, and they can't help you because they are impotent, no life. Well, if the idols cannot do harm to their worshipers, is there any reason to be afraid of them? I would say that this is precisely the reason people invent God into the idol they want him to be under the rubric of, well, God is love. Many, that's it. And that definition has eliminated for them any concept of a negative repercussion for sin. And a number of theologians have now declared that there's no eternal judgment and there's no hell. Right, George? We have books written on this stuff. There's no heaven and there's no hell. There's just the here and now. And when you die, that's it. You're gone into nothingness. Yes, but our text tells us that informed worshipers still, what? Tremble before God because, among other things, he will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13 states again, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. In our day, in our sophisticated culture, people display their idolatry in talking about divinity as my God. I'm, I'm sure you run into people like this. My God would never send anyone to hell. It's part of the subset that they've been taught by pagan teachers, namely that truth is what you make it. Truth is no such thing as an absolute truth. It's just a relative thing. They say truth that remains 
constant, constant throughout all of history and under every circumstance of life is fiction. And so the subset states, I have my truth and you have your truth to each his own. So in the present discussion, they make statements like, my God would never allow a child to be born with a physical or mental impairment. Or my God loves everyone equally. Assuming just for the moment that truth is relative and not absolute, that each of us can and do make decisions based upon how we see life, notice what our text says about the judgment of God at his coming. He comes to judge the earth. Okay, God, what's the criteria? You're coming to judge the earth. You have to have a criteria that you're going to use. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and the peoples, get it now, in his truth. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You mean God is going to use his criteria of truth and his truth alone in meeting out justice to the people? Yeah. And this means, among other things, it takes the wind out of the inflated sails of presumptuous and arrogant people. God is not beholding to you. You are beholding to him. And if your truth, as you say, does not allow you to admit that the soul that sins will die, which is what the scripture says, Ezekiel 18, verse 20, be it known today that God doesn't much care about the idea of your truth. He does not judge men on such false views of truth. His criteria for dealing with the people is is truth. Which, I might say, he has graciously recorded and preserved in the Bible through his prophets and apostles. God has not hidden any essential thing from you, from me. You can read, you can believe, or you can decline and mock, but in the end, God's word will prevail, not yours. God speaking through Isaiah the prophet says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and the sower and the bread provide seed for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire for it to achieve as I had sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and verse 11. So our worship is to evidence a healthy fear of God for who and what he is. He's the creator of all people. He comes in judgment being using his truth as the criteria for the decisions that he makes. We are obligated, obligated to worship God. But then secondly, I would say we are also privileged to worship God. Privilege. 
to worship God as creator. Just think a little bit for where you live and how it is that you have come to the recognition and worship of the God of the Bible. David reflected on this truth in Psalm 139. He says in verse 13 and following, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me are written in your book before any of them ever came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Psalm 139, verse 13 and following. What is this? Well, David is seeing what Moses saw way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. What did Moses see? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27. No money monkey business here. No Darwinian natural selection. No evolution. No spontaneous life from non-life, which is absurd. David will have none of that nonsense. Not because he's wiser than the mad scientists of our day. And by the way, it is irrational to believe that life has issued from non-life. It's also blasphemous because the creation of God is belittled, mocked, denied by blind men who claim to see. Like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, Jesus' rebuke was appropriate. He said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, referring to the Pharisees. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Matthew 15, verse 13 and 14. Think for a moment about the tour guides in Arizona whose job it is to guide people through the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is 277 miles long. It would take you three hours to drive it, if you could drive it. It's up to 18 miles wide. It attains a depth of over a mile, 6,000 feet, gorge. And except for lookout sites established by the national parks, there are no barriers restricting the vast precipices dropping off into the Colorado River Gorge below. I don't like heights. (laughs) I don't know about you. But it would be very eerie for me to stand at a precipice and draw, and look 6,000 6, feet down. It would give me the chills, the willies. 
But every day, hour by hour, day in and day out, the vast majority of the nations put their confidence for spiritual matters and more on the blind inventions of man. Isaiah puts it this way. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame, who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing. He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together, take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. Isaiah 44, verse 9 and following. A craftsman is, is not the creator. His idol works are blind. So is he. How privileged we are to know God as David knew him, as the creator. That's a work of grace that God has done in our lives. Secondly, we're privileged to worship the Creator as Savior. The need of a Savior presupposes that we're lost. We're incapable of rectifying our predicament and improving our state. Back to the Grand Canyon for a moment. Suppose you had a great guide, a person who was well-versed on all the passable trails leading down from the heights to the gorge below, he or she knew the canyon like the back of his or her hand had successfully led hundreds of people down the canyon wall and back up. But somewhere on the descent, you wandered off from the group on a little rabbit trail of your own, and when nightfall came, you found yourself in a remote, barren, forbidding crevice thousands of feet above the canyon floor. You called out, but all you heard was your own voice echoing back off the canyon wall. Suddenly, a sickening feeling overswept you as the reality sunk in. I'm lost. I'm lost. And there's no way, night or day, that I can make it out of this gorge Alive. It's not enough to recognize God as creator. You have to know him as savior. As the one who knows all the nooks and crannies that our sin has taken us to. And as willing and able to sacrifice his own life to find you and rescue you. Our text tells us in the first three verses, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Glory speaks of the light. Salvation for the spiritually blind The psalmist put it this way. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. 
I will lie down. I will sleep in peace. For you, O Lord, are my dwelling in safety. Psalm chapter 4. Again, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23. Again, the Savior himself speaks, saying to his people, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, verse 12. You know, it's a privilege. It is a privilege to know the Creator as Savior. The world, by and large, don't even acknowledge Him as Creator. They certainly don't acknowledge Him as Savior because they don't think they need a Savior. And finally, it is a privilege to worship the Savior. It's a privilege to worship the Savior as judge. Notice how often the psalmist references God as judge. Verse 4. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. Mm. Verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Tremble? Did I read that right? Verse 10. He will judge the peoples with equity. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Fear, mentioned verse 1. Tremble, also mentioned verse 1. God is judge, mentioned three times. But even more astounding is how the psalmist addresses this subject of judgment. Verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Really? Verse 2, sing to the Lord, praise his name. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 11, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad. Verse 12, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Brethren, these are sounds of celebration, not the fearful cries of terror. How can this be? This can be because the judge is the savior of his people engaged in this worship. Jesus put it this way, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son of God gives life to whom he pleases to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. John 5, verse 21 and following. Christ the judge. Given that authority by God the Father. There's no need to dread judgment day if the judge is your savior. You have to think about this. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells us. Okay, but if Christ is my savior, should I be afraid to stand before him? There's no condemnation to those whose sins have been laid on Jesus, who bore our condemnation for us. Paul says so. We who believe have crossed over from death to life, and therein is our great joy and our gladness, and reason enough to be jubilant in song as we worship God. What a privilege to know that the Savior is the judge. David put it this way. Talking to God. And he says, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. For his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. First Chronicles 21 verse 13. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is very great. You ever think about that? I don't like the idea of going to be judged and have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And David is saying, well, you, you do know that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're standing before your Lord and your Savior, right? You couldn't pick a better situation judicially. I know that guy. He's, I know that judge. Yeah, he he's my savior. And the more, most important thing is the judge can look upon us and say, "Yeah, I know that person and that person. They're my children. They're my sons. They're my daughters." So we don't dread judgment day, or shouldn't anyway. You always heard about people that had an in with the judge, right? Human courts. Sometimes there's bribery that goes on and so on, but if you read the scriptures, God won't take bribes. He refuses them. But if you know the judge because he's your savior, he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his people. He died for your sins. All will be well on Judgment Day. Praise the Lord for his great grace and goodness. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Father, thank you for your word and praise you for it. Thank you for the fact that Jesus is our judge. 
We're not going to stand before the evil forces of this world. Satan can be the accuser of the brethren. The scripture says he is. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if he argues his case for us before his own throne, the devil doesn't have a square to stand on. In fact, the devil will come under the same indictment that he's trying to level on us and he'll be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And salvation is of grace and it's of your goodness. You stoop down, you grab hold of us, you pull us out of the miry clay. You set our feet upon the rock of Jesus. And we praise you and thank you for that. Help us to live in such a way as to give that message to the watching world. May they see in us a joy in our salvation. Not a fear, but a confidence that we are children of God. Not not in an arrogant way, but because we have received grace. We've been forgiven. We've been cleansed of our filthiness and our sinfulness. And it is all because of great love and compassion on the part of our Savior. And if there's any here today that's outside of Jesus' love, may you find them today, Lord, and draw them into your presence. With thanksgiving, we pray these prayers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn, I don't have it. Does someone have it? 343? Three, four, three. Three, four, three. Three, four, two. Shall we stand together, sing number 342 in the red?
Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative for the truth of thy word, for the salvation is found in the living word, Jesus. We're thankful for his grace, his condescension, that he left glory, that he came down upon the earth in a humbled state so that he might be Susceptible to the cross. Would give his life. Willingly. He says in John's gospel. No man takes my life from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. Who does a thing like that? Someone with great love. Greater love has no one than this. Than one lay down his life for his brother's. And our heavenly brother, Jesus, lay down his life for his people. We didn't deserve it. We're thankful, Lord. Pray that we'll ever be humbled by it, encouraged by it. May we take the message of the gospel to others. May we live out the gospel in our lives. Thank you for each one here today. Thank you for our little church. Be with our people that are ill and suffering. Watch over them and restore their strength, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.